would invite you now to take a copy of God's Word. Please take a Bible in hand, and we're going to begin with two passages this evening. The first is on page two, if you're using one of the Bibles in the pew rack before you. I do want to welcome everyone here this evening, and I do want to extend a welcome to any guests who have joined us, um, possibly invited because of the topic of this sermon series here on Sunday nights, hard, Christian, uh, hard questions about Christianity. Tonight our question is, why is there evil? Why is there evil? Looking at the clock, we got a little time to cover it. My goal tonight is not to cover every single philosophical question that you may have. I'm not up here tonight uh, in any way as a philosopher, but as a pastor. So I want to give you uh, something of an entrance into what the Bible says about evil. So if you're not a Christian here tonight, uh, we are so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you are willing to wrestle with this question, with this tonight. And I just want to make it plain, uh, my goal is just to give an introduction to what the Bible says about this subject as we address this question. In doing so, I'm not going to cover every passage that would be relevant and important uh, to understanding and answering this question. Uh, for example, one important passage, a classic passage, that would be one that the church and Christians have looked to for centuries has been Genesis chapter 50. We won't cover Genesis chapter 50 tonight, um, mainly because uh, back the first Sunday in August, I, I did preach a sermon on that passage. And so uh, there was a temptation just to redo that sermon and change the title, but I resisted the temptation and I commend it to you. I believe it was an August 6th sermon on Genesis chapter 50. It is available. Uh, through our church's website. Also with that, I really won't touch on matters in Acts chapter 2 and other places uh, that were touched on in that sermon. And one more thing before we pray and come to God's Word this evening. I'm going to ask that everyone here that we kind of get on the same page and begin with one assumption. Uh, one undeniable assumption, uh, so a presupposition of sorts, that there is evil. Our precious time together tonight, I'm not going to uh, spend time demonstrating how the previous century was the bloodiest century in all of history. I'm not going to go through different, many historical illustrations to demonstrate that there's evil. I think if we're all honest, we have been victims of evil, and if we're truly honest, we would recognize by God's grace and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, how we have contributed to the evil that is in the world. So that's an assumption, a presupposition. I ask for you to join with me with that foundation. And then as we look at Scripture. Before we begin in Genesis chapter 2 tonight, in verses 15 through 17, let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we stand with reverence before you, 
seek to come under the instruction and teaching of your word. Ask that by your spirit working among us, it will be made plain, clear, that we might know you, we might worship you, that we might love you, serve you. Thank you that your son has come to show us the way to life. It's through him that we come to you seeking to hear from your word. Know that your spirit is active in the world today and we ask that your spirit would give us understanding to what you have told us in the scriptures. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We begin with Genesis chapter 2, looking at verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, if you would, please, let's turn to the back of the Bible, to 1 John. 1 John. Hit Revelation, you've gone to four. If you're using a pew Bible, it's 1,022. 1 John, chapter 3, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. I have a couple headings for us this evening. I want us to look at the nature of evil. I want us to pay attention to what we saw uh, there in the beginning of Genesis leading up to, and also in 1 John, evil's entrance into the world. And after that, we need to think about the good God who is in control of evil. And with that foundation, I hope to then seek to address the why question, look at the reason for evil, and then we conclude with the end of evil. The nature of evil, number one. Number two, evil's entrance into the world. Number three, the good God who is in control of evil. Number four, the reason for evil, and we close with the end of evil. The nature of evil. Evil. It's important to define what we mean by evil. Simple definition. Evil is the perversion and corruption of what is good. The perversion and corruption of what is good. So in that definition, we are asserting that evil cannot exist apart from the existence of good. So the, the problem of evil is distinctly 
a problem of theism, of Christianity, of those who believe that there is a God. But particularly, it's a problem for Christians because we believe the God who is there is a good God. But it's important to acknowledge that evil cannot be identified apart from there being good. Now, some would try to answer the question of why is there evil by simply stating that evil has always existed. It has always been there. You may recognize this as something as you maybe seen the symbol for yin and yang, light and darkness, competing forces that have always existed. There's other different religions that has some sort of uh, system in which there is the, the evil God and the good God, but that is not the story that we are told in Scripture. We are told in Scripture that evil has not always existed. It is not eternal. That God is eternal and God is good. So goodness precedes evil. Psalm 90, verse 2. For the mountains were brought forth, formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. God is eternal. 1 Peter 2.3, we could pile up these citations for God's being eternal and being eternally good. 1 Peter 2.3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Goodness is from eternity. Goodness is what is original. Evil is parasitic on the good. We see this kind of drawn out in the New Testament words that are used to identify what sin is. So, in the New Testament, one of the words for sin is lawlessness. So, the opposite of God's good and holy law. Lawlessness. Lovelessness is another New Testament word for sin. See, the absence of love. Love being the good. Evil being the corruption, the perversion, the rejection of the good unrighteousness, godlessness. And so we could go on. It's important then to not get ahead of ourselves and say, well, maybe the answer to the question why there is evil is that God permitted that there would be evil in order that we would recognize what is good. So God said, look, if there's no contrast, then how would they know between what is bad and what is right, what is wicked, and what is righteous. And so therefore, in order that you and I might, might know virtue, God permitted evil. Well, the problem with that is that you're, you're, you realize that to take that turn is that you're, you're kind of saying evil is good. In turn, you're saying that good can't exist without evil, but that's not what the Scripture teaches. Good is original. Goodness is eternal. Because it is a characteristic, an attribute of God. Now, we can divide uh, or identify two categories of evil. There's moral evil and natural evil. For the Christian, moral evil is what we call a sin. It is the breaking of God's 
good commands. And sin is the root of all other evil that springs forth. So the second category of evil is natural evil. This is calamity, drought, plagues, disease, cancers, hurricanes, forest fires, on and on. And there could be, even within these two categories, other types of evils to identify the evils of unjust war, terrorism, and all these different things. But those two big categories, moral evil and natural evil. The nature of evil. The perversion and corruption of what is good. Then, well, how did evil come into God's good world? That's the refrain of Genesis chapter 1. That every day of creation, God created and said, it is good, it is good, it is good. So evil's entrance into the world is there from the very beginning of Genesis. And this is important to root ourselves in identifying where the beginning of evil in this world happens. That the creation itself is good before there was a fall. Some would try to answer the question of why is there evil by saying that, well, it's because of our creatureliness. Because of our limitations as created beings, our finitude, that it is just part of the design. That we are not the creator, and therefore since we are created, a propensity to evil is part of it. That's not the creation that God made. So evil has a beginning, and it has a beginning in history and in the world. It is the fall that we see in Genesis chapter 3. But actually, the Bible speaks of two falls. The one in Genesis chapter 3, the fall of Adam and the first sin, is the one where we get the most information and the clearest revelation on. There's a fall that preceded that fall, and it happened among spiritual beings, angelic beings the one that 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, John there alludes to. That the devil was a sinner from the beginning. Meaning from the beginning of the created world, he shows up as a sinner. There's the angelic fall as the first fall. The Apostle John also refers to this fall in John chapter 8, verse 44. Shockingly, Jesus is speaking to religious leaders. He says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. That he was a murderer from the beginning. Does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now what's important there, among many things, is that Jesus said the devil did not stand in the truth. He does not stand in the truth. It could be translated, he did not abide in the truth. He did not stay in the truth. And what's alluding to is that 
The devil fell from truth. He rejected truth himself and became the father of lies. But the devil was not created evil, but he himself fell. Now there's much mystery to this, but the Bible does tell us here in this passage, and then also, interestingly, Paul, when he's giving instructions to a young pastor named Timothy, he's giving Timothy instructions about who can, can serve in leadership in the church. And one of the warnings he has is that don't want someone serving in leadership to be a recent convert. Because if they're a new convert, they may be especially vulnerable to pride. Here they, they just come in, they've just come into a relationship with Christ, and now they're being exalted to a position of leadership. So 1 Timothy 3.6 says, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. But what Paul is alluding to is saying that if someone comes and through pride and arrogance, they will experience a similar fall that the devil did. They'll fall in the same condemnation that he did. The Christians have understood that part of what happened in that angelic fall, that Satan, devil, that ancient serpent, wanted God's position. That pride rose up, he was cast down. From the beginning. So here in John 8 and in 1 John 3, we see that the origin of sin in the world begins outside of this world, in the angelic world, in the spiritual realm, that the origin of sin with the devil is the instigator and the originator. Created being, created capable of falling. Now this is about where we, we have to exercise caution and pump the brakes we should not say much more. That where did the evil, where did the rejection of God's lordship and godness happen in the mind of the devil? What, what was the, the, the seed of that? I cannot speak to that. Herman Bavink put it this way, an explanation of sin truly Possible. Augustine, church father, said, I sought from where evil comes from, and I found no solution. Now, these great theologians, they understand what the Bible says about the devil being the instigator, the one who brought temptation into the world. But speaking of the mechanism by which he himself fell, this is mystery, and rightfully so. But it is the reality that the Scripture testifies to. And then it testifies to that that devil then, in Genesis 3, comes in the form of a serpent and speaks words of temptation and doubt. And Eve and her husband Adam sin and fall. 
Now it's important to recognize that in the passage we read in Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17, it is God who put the tree there in the garden. This is laying the groundwork that God himself ordained that there would be a fall. We read there in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is there put in the middle of the garden which Adam is to tend. God says, take dominion of the whole world, Adam. Here's your wife. Procreate, fill the world. Here is a garden filled with good things to eat in abundance. One tree in the center of the garden. Do not eat of that one. It was meant to be, among many things, a constant reminder of Adam, of his creatureliness and his dependence on God. Now, some have wondered, is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil a, a mystical tree? Was there something, you know, like, like magical that happened? Was something like, a, like, imagine taking a potion and all of a sudden the fall occurs. We're not certain. We're not certain that we can be certain of this is that God told them that if you do eat of this fruit, a spiritual transaction will happen. It is a, a tree of decision put there. And if you are to take and partake of this tree, you are seeking knowledge that rightfully belongs to God and that you should not seek apart from God. The God of heaven who is transcendent, He is the determiner of what is good and what is bad. And so for Adam to eat from the tree was to declare moral autonomy from this God. Choosing to make Himself the arbitrator of what is good and bad. Throwing off God's good reign. And it was a good reign and submission that He created Adam to dwell in and live in. And if Adam would have kept that command and not violated that prohibition, then the good God would have rewarded him glory and eternal life. But he took. The fall occurs. God created Adam with freedom, a good thing. And he did so with abundance. Only one prohibition. God entrusted Adam with authority and dominion, a good thing. And Adam uses his freedom to sin, seeking what only rightfully belongs to God. That is evil's entrance into the world. Now, that's not where the Bible leaves us, the story of evil. The Bible declares to us that God is in control of evil, but is a good God who himself is not evil, who controls evil. Scriptures make this very clear, testifying to God's character. The prophet Habakkuk says in chapter 1, verse 13, you are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, the rock Speaking of God, 
His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. 1 John 1.5, God is light, in Him is no darkness at all. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. This is what the scriptures tell us of God's perfection, his moral perfection, his holiness. The prophet Isaiah sees a vision of the Lord, and in that vision he hears the seraphim repeating, holy, holy, holy. Nothing evil in God. But, Scriptures also testify that evil exists, but its existence is under God's control. There's many ways to cite this. Uh, Isaiah 45.7 is one that says it quite clearly. I form light to create darkness. I make well-being create calamity. I am the Lord does all these things. It's God standing over all the events of humankind. All evil acts of human history says, this is under my control. Ezekiel 14.9 is, is one example. There's many more than, that we can go to and cite to in Scripture. But here, as part of a judgment against a rebellious people, God sends them prophets with a false message. God would, would lead his people and speak to them and reveal to them his will and his way through the prophets that would come and speak and preach to them. And then, as part of judgment, God sends prophets with a false word. Ezekiel 14.9 and if the prophet is deceived and speaks a word, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet. And I will stretch out my hand against him and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. So God says, I led him into that deception, but he is a God of truth and always a God of truth. And he righteously then holds his instrument of evil accountable for the evil act. So, it can be said, and I believe that the scriptures wholeheartedly support this, in Westminster Confession, chapter 1, I mean chapter 3, paragraph 1, of God's decrees, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin. God ordains whatsoever comes to pass and is not the author of sin. God ordains evil, but He's not the author of evil. He controls evil and yet hates evil. Evil is constrained by God. God has decreed things, events that are displeasing to Him. To what end? 
Why is there evil now? What is the reason for evil? Reason for evil, for the revelation, the glory of God. It is God who put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in his good creation. And he did so and he ordained so that there would be a fall and all that would come from that fall for the purpose of revealing his glory. Charles Hodge is very helpful and I have a long quotation from him in a moment, but he makes the basic kind of argument. The glory of God is the purpose of all things. The glory of God is the purpose of all things. That's the, the weight of Scripture that presses on us. The glory of God is the purpose of all things. You and I, our happiness, not the purpose of all things. Pastor Jason last week cited Westminster Shorter Catechism, number one, what is man's chief end? is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Our enjoyment of Him is in glorifying Him, and that's tied to it, but the glory of God is the thing. Exodus chapter 20, the, the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And that's the fall, both in the angelic realm and in this, in this world. Rejecting and throwing off God's lordship and reign. God's glory is the purpose of all things. And so, second thing Hodge points out is that then God reveals his infinite perfection and his purpose through his works. His works of creation, providence, redemption. In order that we might glorify Him, God reveals Himself through His works. When He made all things, as in providence, He is still governing all things. Then in redemption, He is rescuing sinners from their sin and evil. So, Hodge's third point, which I believe is the teaching of Scripture the fall reveals the revelation of the glory of God revealed in His justice, mercy, and grace. The fall reveals the revelation of the glory of God in His justice, mercy, and grace. An important passage is Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 is, is giving us revelation and insight into great mysteries about God's ways. In Romans 9, 22-23, the Apostle Paul writes, What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Verse 23, In order to make known the riches of of His glory for the vessels of mercy He has prepared beforehand for glory. And even in there, we see that God's decree and His ordination that there are things that God ordains that displease Him, 
But he does so in order to make known his justice, his power, his righteousness. Ultimately, that he might be exalted. The giver of mercy. God who is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Stick with me here. Here's a long quote from Hodge. The knowledge of God is eternal life. It is for the creature's highest good. And the promotion of that knowledge, the manifestation of the manifold perfections of the infinite God, is the highest end of all His works. This, declared by the Apostle to be the end contemplated, the end contemplated, both in the punishment of sinners and in the salvation of believers. Sin, evil, therefore, according to the Scriptures, is permitted that the justice of God may be known in its punishment and His grace, His forgiveness, might be known. And I love this last line. And the universe, without the knowledge of these attributes, would be like the earth without the light of the sun. The glory of God is the reason for all things, even the reason for evil. Now this helps us think about natural evil. I've mainly been dwelling on moral evil, but there's also the problem of natural evil. Well, natural evil entered the world with the fall in Genesis 3. God curses the ground. And then in Romans 8, it speaks about creation being bound and longing and groaning for the revealing of the sons of God. God, in His goodness, in ordaining a fall, left remnants of the good creation that we get to enjoy food and drink and sunsets and soon to be slowly falling snowflakes first the changing of the leaves and we enjoy these things but God also his goodness said this is what a world looks like that is not submitted to my reign moral chaos that at times seems out of control, and then there's natural disasters and calamity, and almost chaos. Even the hurricane points to the glory of God. Even the earthquake points to the glory of God. This is what a world, His good world, looks like apart from His reign. But in His goodness, and in His Word, He has told us about the end of evil. That's where we end this evening. So think back to 1 John 3.8. Bear with me one more time. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What is the works of the devil. What can we see? Well, 
He is assaulting those made in the image of God. He is seeking to cause increasing evil and harm throughout the ages. And he seeks to keep those who are under his reign in rebellion against their creator in order that they might suffer with him the consequences of sin and evil for all eternity. And so morally, he assaults humanity. He is the tempter, enticing to sin. John 8 says he is a murderer. He seeks to harm not just the soul, but the body as well. There's physical assaults. There's intellectual assaults. He seeks to lie, to seduce, and to error. And then even for those who come to Christ and know the blessings of His mercy and grace, He seeks to spiritually assault, as well as to harm in all of those other ways as well, but He seeks to get you to question God's promises and God's word. The book of Revelation refers to Him as the accuser of the brethren, questioning your place in God's family, questioning Are you saved? Peter describes him as a roaring lion seeking whom he devour. But Martin Luther and his hymn, The Mighty Fortress, gets this right. The line, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That's what John told us, that Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus enters history. Son of God takes on flesh with a mission to save sinners and to conquer their enemy. He comes on the offensive to destroy the works of the devil. The God who ordained evil ordained its demise and destruction through the person, His Son. Through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son. The God who controls evil faced evil Himself in the person of Jesus, suffered, conquered, and will return to vanquish evil. So therefore, Dear Christian, we do not just take comfort that God is in control. That in this time, while we await our Lord's return, we oppose evil in the world today. We seek the promotion of righteousness in every sphere, but most importantly, we go forth with the message that our neighbors, our friends, our family members, that they do not have to Remain under the assault of the works of the enemy forever. Now, there is one who can come and destroy their enemy and can destroy the enemy's effect in their hearts and lives. So, dear Christian, we oppose evil. The most important way we can do so is to tell others of the one conquered evil. Tell others of the one 
who paid for the evil that I have committed. The penalty that my sin deserve, that He died for sinners. He died for the guilty. One of the passages, we can go to numerous passages that speak of Christ's victory over evil. One that is important and it, and it frames it in the He has accomplished it now and the full effect of what He has accomplished is yet to be seen in its full manifestation. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, the, the Apostle Paul is reminding the Corinthians that if Jesus didn't literally raise from the dead, then their faith is for nothing. And one of the, the consequences is that if Jesus didn't really rise from death, his death being the penalty and the sentence for sin, then evil will always reign. But it is not the case that Jesus has risen from the dead and now he is bringing from death and darkness a people to God, a kingdom. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, it says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Very similar to what we heard this morning in Hebrews chapter 10, isn't it? goes on in verse 54, 1 Corinthians 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he does an immediate application. Did you ever notice that? That chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians closes with an immediate application. So what, Paul? So one day, Jesus will return and all evil will be vanquished and wiped out and he'll deliver the kingdom to his Father. We'll be there. That's great. We should hold on to that. That's our hope. I got it. That's good. What about Monday morning? And he gives it to us. In verse 58, he says, Therefore, this is the concluding thought for you Corinthians. This is the concluding thought for you. Jesus has really risen from the dead. Evil has lost, and one day it will be done away with. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Do not be discouraged by the evil around us, that Jesus through his people, through his church, destroying the works of the enemy. If you're not a Christian, uh, I, I appreciate that you, you stuck with us here. That was clearly directed to those who named the name of Christ uh, among us. To you, will you remain under the dominion of evil? God has presented a Redeemer and a Savior. He has opened His kingdom to you through Jesus. Would you 
turn from the kingdom of darkness. Turn to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. He calls you. He will not reject any who come to Him. And all of us here, we have been perpetrators of evil, deserve the penalty for sin, but we've also been hurt and the victim of sin and evil. Christ's victory is secure and it will make all things right. So I close with two passages for the sufferer. Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. He shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet. The day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, at the conclusion of Scripture, Revelation 21, John writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Hold, I'm making all things new. Amen. Let us pray. Lord and our God, I think I could speak for everyone in this room, believer and unbeliever. We are tired of this old world, the pain and suffering, and the evil around us. Thank you. You have provided a deliverer and a conqueror of sin and death, and that the worst things that happened in all of human history and the worst things that have happened us serve your purpose and for your glory pray for those who still remain outside of Christ that they might be disillusioned by all the other alternative answers to the problem of evil may you give them faith to take that step reject Satan and sin turn to your beloved son we ask this name and